Constantinople has fallen, and all across Europe, ancient vampires known as Methuselah rise to claim vast territories as their own. This is the War of Princes, where the political maneuvering of old stand side by side with the armies of ghouls and canines clashing in the night. But vampires are not the only ones making this land their own. In the wild places, the Guru have their cairns. Mages have ancient sites of power for magic. The Shadow Inquisition has risen to eradicate the enemies of God. And the enigmatic Fae have their own plans. Welcome to the Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 7 of season 2 of the World of Dark Ages podcast, History and Gaming United. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, Peter, how's Sweden? Uh, Sweden is uh, cold and everyone is buying toilet paper and pasta. Mm. Uh, Denmark is warming up slightly and everyone's buying iodine tablets. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go back in time a little bit then. Yeah, exactly. That's that's enough for a current event. Let's go back to a simpler time where demons and vampires roamed Earth. I don't know. Something along those lines. But last time we yeah. got started on Dark Ages Mage and today we finish it. Um, the art for the second part continues to be pretty good. I especially like the picture on page 129 where there's a, a guy who has this demonic sword. And yes, it's not a historically accurate sword, but the picture just look amazing. And in general, I think the pictures here really complement the text uh, though the less said about the winged helmeted Viking on page one fifty four, the better. Yeah, the Asterix called and wanted his helmet back. <laughs> yeah, basically, exactly. it's yeah. Uh, there's there, there's also a rather weird one on on page one seventy three where it it looks more like uh, a seventies hippie with with kind of the the flared sleeves and and high boots and a very short skirt uh, rather than anything historical uh, but but yeah overall the I, I also like the, the illustrations exactly uh, that that picture does look a bit like someone at a roller disco or something yeah <laughs> so uh, we move on to chapter four and here we get what we came for in this book namely the magic system now in role-playing games there are generally two approaches to magic. You have the approach often used by fantasy role-playing games like D&D, Warhammer, and uh, Drakaroch Demoner, where you uh, have a set number of spells and characters can know a certain number of them. Usually, there's little to no way to vary the effects of those spells. And then there's the approach often taken by games set in our world, where you have a more freeform system with suggestions on what people can do and examples, but much of it is left up to the imagination of both the player and the game master. And that is obviously the way this game goes. Now, both systems does have its pros and cons. The first system is pretty easy and straightforward, but you can end up feeling, well, not very magical. The second system can often lead to discussions of what exactly a character can do as it relies on interpretation of the rules. Uh, do you have any preference for one over the other? I I'm not sure that I have any preferences. Uh, I I do like simplicity in general when it comes to these so, sort of things. Uh, the the problem with with this kind of system that that Mage uses is that it's it demands quite a lot from both the player and the storyteller. Uh, and as you mentioned, there can probably be some discussion on exactly what you can do and, and how you can do it. Uh, but I find that uh, 
having not really played the this kind of mage system, uh, I I really can't say how well it works. But but I think it's an interesting system because it allows you more freedom. Uh, of course, you can do that with with say the classical D and D style of magic as well. But um, in in general, you. I wouldn't say you need to be a better role player, but but you probably need to be a bit more creative with the kind of system that Mage uses, uh, which can be a good thing, but it it can also kind of be a bit demanding of the, both the player and the storyteller. Yeah, one thing that I think can be a real problem here is every Mage has four pillars that have different effects. Uh, every Mage Fellowship. So when you're playing... A mage, you need to understand what your four pillars can do. However, if you then have, say, a group with four players, each playing a different fellowship, the game master kind of has to understand each fellowship's magic in order to adjudicate, is this something that you can do? I mean, you can obviously always trust the players and say, okay, I'm going to trust that you understand what you can do. But sometimes the players might inadvertently have misunderstood something so you can end up in a situation where the game master really has to keep up with it and also something that is this open to interpretation it it, it can sometimes yeah be be a bit problematic but i mean a freeform system is kind of cool especially for for something that really focuses on uh, on magic but like i said the way the system works is that each fellowship has a foundation and four pillars uh, each mage has a rating from one to five in foundation and zero to five in the pillars the foundation is simply their magical strength while the pillar shows exactly what they can do the higher the foundation rating the easier it is for the mage to control the magic the higher the pillars the more powerful magic they can do also each foundation usually comes with a side benefit once you get enough dots in it, either four or five dots, um, which I think is really nice because it shows that the mage is sort of getting more magical. Yeah, you're, you're really mastering the arts of, of the mystical. Yeah, um, I have to say I like this approach. While each fellowship can do many of the same things, for example, burning an enemy with fire, that's something that several of the fellowships can do. The effect will be the same. You're burning the enemy with fire, but their approach to it is different from calling upon the uh, elemental fire to calling upon the aspect of summer to calling upon the archangel of fire. They have their own very specific approach to it. It gives the fellowships a lot of flavor, and that also means that there are things that they simply cannot do, which also fits with the fact that magic is really tied to their vision of reality. And while the system is a bit complicated, I think they do a really good job of walking you through the rules and giving a lot of examples. Um, so with this system obviously being the core of a mage game, I think they did a really good job of making it useful, interesting, and also giving it actually kind of a medieval feel. Yeah, I I, I agree with you uh, on, on that. Um, I, I've, been, I've been reading through the different pillars and everything quite a few times because it... it it is quite a lot. Of course, if if you're a player, and then then you'd basically just need to uh, know one of these uh, factions, un unless you really want to be good at at the rules and helping your your other players out. But but yeah, the, it, there's a lot of it, but there are some interesting flavors to it. And uh, overall, I I like how they um, how they presented it and and how they show the difference between them. Um, in in the last episode, we spoke about how the the old faith and the 
the Valdermen uh, could basically be the same faction and, and that it's kind of weird that, that they aren't. Uh, but in this section, they they have actually varied their magical powers a bit. Uh, I, I'm still not sure if I'm a huge fan of, of them being d- different factions, but at least they have they have some difference in how their magic work and it's it's not just the same. Um, and what what I do think uh, if we go into more kind of um, ru- rule focused discussion, is that you you have the uh, rotes I'm assuming it's supposed to be pronounced which is kind of the the basic spells that uh, ne- that are already known and and that people can kind of um, examples on on how to uh, enhance your abilities using or enhance, do basically do stuff basically readied spells um, and. I, I do like the examples, but I do find that they're kind of, um, I wouldn't say unbalanced, but they're they're kind of uneven between the different uh, the the different fellowships. So, for example, in uh, some of the examples given or some of the roads given for for uh, certain pillars or uh, certain certain factions are like a combination of of fairly low levels. Uh, while others for other factions are really high levels and that's that, that's not necessarily a problem but but it kind of um, it, it's it's not very pedagogic and or, or kind of it makes it more difficult to kind of figure out your kind of example level like what can a a beginning uh, uh, old faith, practitioner do compared to say an order of Hermes uh, and and you can't really compare them and and that's kind of I don't know it's a bit annoying that that you don't get the same kind of examples for for all factions if if you get my point. yeah exactly I, I would have loved to have had like for each faction have an example of a low level road a mid level uh, mid power road and a high power road and then what they they could have one or two others where they just you know what they felt inspired mm. by but you're right because this really this is a system that really really needs examples to get an idea of what you can do because obviously it's difficult to be as broad as possible while still staying within a certain level of um, of word count so uh, examples are a good way to get people to really understand what it is that they what they want with the system yeah um but yeah. i think they've built in a lot of cool things like if you are if you're using um magic that resonates with the area that you're in so for example, if you're in Rome or Avignon and you're using Christian magic, then that's easier. Uh, and also, when uh, when things go wrong, uh, you don't get hit with paradox, which is a thing that modern players of mage will know about, where <clears throat> there is a certain global uh, paradigm that you're breaking, and thus reality tries to hit you over the head with a with a hammer. Here, if if things go wrong, then you know what you get hit with is the result of you doing something wrong you messing up mm. it's like if you if you're cutting vegetables and you end up cutting your finger then that's not because of paradox that's simply because you messed up and that's the same yep. here so you you don't have this rigid 
um, reality that you're fighting against. It's more that you're trying to control reality-altering powers, and if you don't control them properly, then that's going to fall back upon you and, and hit you over the head. Yeah, uh, I agree. It's a lot of the kind of examples of, of the different effects or, or bad effects. Uh, it, it reminds me a bit of, of how uh, how magic is presented in, in the Warhammer fantasy role-playing game, where, where basically if you start messing up, then you're going to turn into this kind of chaotic, mutated thing, which which is just a, an eldritch abomination if, if you mess up too much. Uh, so so yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting take on it, and I, I like the fact that it's at least from what I understand that it's so different from uh, from the modern uh, version with, with paradox. Um, that said, there there are a few other things that I I, I would like to have seen in this chapter, um, and and a few rules that are kind of weird, and and one of them is that. To resist uh, magic, you you have to be aware of a spell being cast on you, and and you can roll perception plus awareness to be aware of it. And and I'm just thinking that, yeah, of course, there's there's always going to be like hidden and subtle spells, and and you tripping over something, being conjured by your opponent or something, but but. Like if you start using mind bending spells and and kind of the whole uh, mind control and things like that, wouldn't you notice that automatically? It, it, I don't know. It's, it feels kind of weird to to kind of have have an effect that that obviously affects you, but you still need to roll to figure out that you're being affected by it. Yeah, and especially because you said that they ha you have to roll perception awareness and rules as written in this edition, only mages really get awareness, which means that unless it is quite obvious that somebody is waving their hands around and chanting and pointing a wand at you, only mages can roll to detect that they're being affected yeah. by magic. And that starts to, to yeah, like you said, get a bit, uh, get a bit problematic. Uh, I I think you know with with mind control you could you could divide it into obvious mind control which if it works is extremely powerful but you can always resist and then more subtle where they only yeah. have a small chance of of noticing it but if if it goes through it's it's going to be really subtle in the way it works getting players to uh, to decide am I going to just completely sandblast their minds or I'm or I'm I going to worm my way into it. Yeah, exactly, and and that that would have been, in, in I think they need to kind of look at that rule again, uh, and and also uh, it it would be nice if they have because there are so many things kind of affecting your spells: the duration of the spell, the range of the spell. There are different. There are normal castings and hurried castings, and then you have extended spells and everything like that. It would be nice to just have a summary. In the end of the chapter, with with just basically a sidebar or a page going through example castings from from every different aspect, so that you don't have to flip through the pages back and forth. Because otherwise, it's it's gonna be a learning curve, and you don't really want to do that while you're in the middle of a cool scene. And it's like, oh shit, was this a normal casting or a hurried casting? And and do I have that extra? dot somewhere and and it's yeah it's, it, it might be an end up messy 
uh, which could be fun, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one where you really want to have a cheat sheet next to yeah. you to re- yeah. that you can refer to. And it's also, mm. it's, it's a system that demands a lot of the storyteller because you have to be aware of the different types of magic and how they work, but also you have to be ready for when somebody botches to figure out, well, what negative effect am I going to apply? Uh, yeah. And if you choose, there's one negative effect that's manifestation where the, your botched magic draws some kind of creature into the world. And if you choose that as a game master, then you have to create the creature. And like you said, in the middle of a tense scene, if the game master goes, yeah, could you give me like two minutes? I need to create this creature. That can that can really disrupt the flow of the game. But yeah. the thing is, it is the um, it's the strength of the of the botch that determines how powerful the creature is. So you can't really have a creature pre-prepared. So I think that they, you know, there's a lot of of really interesting things here. But I don't know how they could have done it different. But I think that there's something they could have done to ease the burden, especially on the game master. Yeah, exactly. I I don't think it's a bad system, but it's it's a bit of a complicated system. Uh, and if you like that, then go ahead. Uh, but I like you said, a, a sheet sheet or a few example uh, creatures that you can be pulled into existence. Uh, just anything like that that can just help out a bit. Uh, perhaps just like a a, a random chart that you can roll on to see if if what shows up rather uh just just to help out uh and of course it can be fun to roll on charts unless you kind of have to roll three different charts depending on on what's happening but if you have like roll roll a d100 and and depending on uh the level of your botch then you go to chart a b or c or whatever um, yeah, because that also it it uh, that reinforces the the sort of chaotic nature of magic, mm, and yeah. I I I mean obviously the storyteller system has always been a system of telling stories and and not being random, but at the same time, I think there is an element of chaos and randomness to magic that yeah, like you said, having some kind of of table or other idea where other thing where you can get an idea of what's happening sort of randomly so that that it's not always in the hands of the game master because one thing i would be worried about would be if if i'm constantly penalizing someone by choosing the most uh, dangerous of um, mm, of of yeah. bad effects or that that the bad effects get too predictable because some of them require work so i never choose those but i think all in all yeah. they managed to they managed to do make a system that makes magic feels feel magical yeah that that they do and uh it it kind of strikes me that it's it's basically maths which (laughs) is kind of cool because you you can you can literally look at the different combinations and and figure out like if if i have so many dots in this foundation and i have these many dots in my different pillars then i can do these different things and and you get bonuses depending on how many extra pillars you include and stuff like that, which which is kind of fun and it also um, it, it it also lends itself to a certain kind of, of playing style that I think could fit very well in this game. So so you can literally have a uh, an order of Hermes is probably the best fit. Who is he's he's just basically doing maths. That's that's kind of his thing. He's 
he's some kind of proto-scientist magician, uh, but his science is figuring out exactly how much uh, quintessence and how much magical power he has to put into his spell to get the desired effect. And and for him, it's just really boring and it's it's just charts and, and calculations. But for everyone else, it's this fantastical, almost miraculous uh, magic that he, he conjures and, and produces, uh, which I think could be an interesting concept to play, at least for a while, uh, and until you get tired of, of too much maths. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's uh, I like the system, um, even though it might be a bit complicated at times. Uh, moving on to chapter five, this is Magical Lands, which gives us an overview of various lands, both in the mortal world and beyond, with examples of magical locations in each area. One thing that I felt was generally missing is in each section was more information on what fellowships can be found and there and what they're mm. up to. There is some information, but I would have liked more so that if you wanted to get started with the Chronicle, you don't have to do too much work yourself. Now, obviously, some people, including myself, really like designing all sorts of, of characters and stuff. But sometimes it can be nice just to know that, okay, we have these people here and I can give that information and then we can get started. Um, we start with the Celtic lands, which apparently means Brittany and the British Isles, even though the Celts weren't just limited to these lands. Uh, yeah. Sadly, Brittany is only mentioned, no information is given, and I think uh, Brittany is quite an interesting area in this time. For those of you who don't know, uh, Brittany is, if you imagine a map of France, it's the, the pointy bit that sticks out in the north-western uh, part of, of France, and it's really different from the rest of France. Um, I felt this section spent a little too much time on the example realm of Avalon, but otherwise I like the yeah. information given. And for werewolf fans, there's a nice nice Easter egg in the Scotland section. Yeah, I, I was about to ask about that, that the underground uh, cannibalistic incestuous uh, werewolves, they're probably supposed to be the Black Spiral dancers, right? Exactly, yeah. So it, it's... And, and again, and we've been talking about this, uh, that we don't really like crossovers, but... This entire setting and this version of the game basically builds a lot on, on it being a crossover, so it yeah. kind of makes sense from that po point of view. Um, what I I agree with what you say about uh, about the Celtic lands. Uh, one thing that I was kind of uh, th that I reacted to is that they talk a lot about the Fae in this section, which makes sense. Um, and they talk about the different powers of the Fae, and they mention that the weakness of, of Fae is uh, uh, cold iron weapons. Uh, and cold iron weapons, according to this book, is supposed to be uh, things made from iron that hasn't been heated in a forge. And they mention that, well, luckily, most weapons are cold iron weapons. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> what? They're not. Uh, I would challenge anyone. To forge, well, I, I you could probably forge a a knife uh, or like an arrowhead or something or a nail quite easily. Maybe a small uh, or, or rather without too much difficulty, without using a forge or without heating the metal. But you can't really make axes or swords uh, or or anything like that uh, easily without 
heat in metal. So that's I don't know I don't know what I was thinking when they wrote that. No, I mean the funny thing is whenever you see this thing with cold iron there's always uh, different interpretations of what cold iron actually is. To some people it's just pure iron that is iron that hasn't been been turned into uh, steel by adding carbon. To some people it's meteoric iron to others it's what you said iron that hasn't been been heated when forged so it it differs what cold iron actually is but you're absolutely right you're never going to be forging any kind of large effective weapon just by hammering on iron with a hammer you will have to heat it and obviously any weapon with a a significant cutting edge so a dagger a sword uh, an axe at least the edge will be made of steel yeah, exactly. Uh, at least in this point in time. Yeah. Uh, and and it's also interesting that, at, again, I was looking through my library of, of Swedish folklore and and they talk about the one of the reasons why iron things, uh, again, in, in some aspects of the folklore, why it's considered magical and, and having an effect against the supernatural is because that it has been forged again going back to the the kind of mystical properties surrounding blacksmiths because they can do they can take a, a lump of something really really hard and transform it into something completely different which is kind of cool and and magical in and of itself so it yeah you, you should probably uh, make clear to your players what you mean by cold iron uh, in your campaign when when you start out so that people uh, they they might still disagree but at least they're all on the same page so that they're they know what's what a game is uh, <laughs> otherwise it might end up uh, as rather interesting and heated discussions yes no intended. <laughs> and of course when it comes to the fey uh, eventually we'll get to the dark ages fey book which mm. when this was written wasn't even planned which is why they have a different approach to uh, to the fey in this book but the dark ages fey book i think does fey weaknesses so amazingly well ah, cool. but yeah so so that was that was the british isles which i i will say this um as much as they could have focused on the fey i like that they managed to to focus a little bit on other things like um, what did they call them? The Wick, uh, sort of an ancient, powerful race, and you obviously have things like King Arthur and you have Stonehenge. But we are talking about iconic, mystical sites and people and stuff like that. So it makes sense yeah, that this yeah. is what they are going to be focusing on. Yeah. Then we have Scandinavia, and once again, the love affair with Norway continues. Yeah, this this section kind of disappointed me. The example area of Kaltheim was really interesting and well described, but there's no real information on what's going on with the mages in the rest of Norway or, for that matter, the rest of Scandinavia. Also, one yeah. thing to mention here: throughout the book, when talking about the Jotuns or Jeta, as they're called in modern Danish, uh, they call them giants. I know that this is the generally accepted way to look at them, but in the stories, the Jotuns came in all sizes, and I've actually come to prefer the word that Dr. Jackson Crawford, um, a, a guy I follow on YouTube, he uses, which is anti-gods, but that's just a little nitpick from me. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. So when it comes to Sweden, what mystical places could you see being interesting to mages? Well, I I would actually go north to, to the parts that aren't really Sweden by now, by by this time and, and actually go to the to the Sami people and the Noids, at least if you kind of want a low-hanging fruit, because up there you you do have 
the midnight sun. You actually do have places where where the sun isn't up for for half the year, uh, and so you can have these magical lands, especially with with what they're going in with. Uh, with the Umbra and the Penumbra and, and the, the non-physical realms that uh, that this book includes, uh, so you can have like um, northern lights being uh, be, being uh, gateways to different places or or the uh, the souls of the deceased or whatever you want to have it. So that that would be an interesting uh, place to. Uh, to to just play around with if you want to kind of the the old faith look on it uh there are also other places you you could have you could go to to Bergslagen which is more in the center of Sweden where um where there are a lot of mines and and mining going on uh and so you could easily have uh the kind of of um, uh, the the kind of fae that lives in in caves and and mines, which is a staple of of a lot of folklore. Uh, you have the kobolds down in is it Germany or, or uh, Bohemia where they uh, basically one of those areas. I can't quite remember. Yeah, but but you you have similar. You you have the just as you have the 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 skogsro the uh, the forest row, which is kind of this. Uh, this uh, uh, forest spirit uh, depicted uh, as a beautiful woman from behind, but having bark uh, on her back or or her back being a hollow out tree trunk. You also have uh, the uh, the mountain row or the the uh, mine row, uh, which is uh, basically the same, but but uh, her living in a uh, living down in the mines and and shafts of of the mountains and uh, and you would uh, you would make sure that when you entered the mine you would you would tap into the rock to let her know that you were coming so yeah. you wouldn't disturb her and and stuff like that. So uh, there there are some interesting places. Uh, of course, in in Sweden we have. Um, we have what is called giant's throws, uh, which is uh, it's this huge boulder left uh, left from the ice age when the retreating ice would deposit huge boulders in places where they look like they don't make any sense for them being there. Uh, and so, a common myth is that uh, they they've been thrown by giants, and if they've been close to uh, churches, it's because uh, the giants, uh, them being supernatural creatures, they don't like the the sound of the church bells, so they would try to hit the churches by throwing rocks at them. <laughs> uh, so, so you do have, you, you do have quite a lot of places. Uh, Gotland, I think, would be a cool place. Uh, you have one of Sweden's uh, longest caves, the Lumelunda Cave, uh, which is uh, uh, an obvious place for for something to hide in, uh, and. They they also have their own uh, kind of it's a, it's an it's an island with its own creation myth basically that that it um, let me see if I actually remember the the story properly but but the story went that uh, Gotland was an island that uh, I think it, during the morning or when the sun came up it rose from the sea and when the sun uh, set. It, it sank back into the sea. And so one of the heroes of, of uh, Gotland mythos was the person who managed to uh, 
uh, set the island so that it wouldn't uh, sink every night. Mm. Uh, so so you could do something with that probably. Um, but but yeah, there's there's quite a few uh, places, uh, especially if you want to avoid uh, the kind of Christian sites like Uppsala. Uh, and and of course, well, Lund wasn't. It was Danish at this time. It was indeed. Uh, do Do you have any Danish places that you think would would be cool? It's you. You have less space to choose from, but I don't know. I would say that probably um, uh, the island of Bornholm would be one of the more interesting mm. places because it is so different from the rest of Denmark. Um, obviously, Denmark really doesn't have much in the way of cliffs and mountains they have no we have no mountains denmark is basically very very flat land laid atop lime and um, limestone and chalk but bornholm is the odd one out and this is an a, an island of of cliffs and rocks and granite bedrock and there's a lot of caves and there's a lot of um of interesting um nature there there are sea stacks so there are a lot of of interesting places where you could basically say okay this is this is magical another place that would really be great for the valdermen is the lindholm hills which is north of ohu no sorry olbo if i recall correctly it's either olbo or ohus but i think it's olbo which is an area of numerous numerous burial mounds so if you ah, yeah. get into the whole uh, Trauger, the uh, the the Genganger, the the reawakened revenants of North yeah, myth- mythology, yeah. this is an area where you definitely have some options for uh, for that. But yeah, it's just I think every person knows of areas in their neighborhood, in their country, wherever they are, that in this time would be uh, would be useful as sort of a a magical place there are all sorts of of legends of um of magical places yeah i'm i'm thinking uh i i went there when i was like 10 or something but in is it uh, the western part of uh, of denmark where you have the sand dunes and you yes. have a a lighthouse which has basically been buried uh, it's by, a church by, is it a church? Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, the bur- the buried church. That's up. That's up north. Yeah, where Sandrift pretty much buried a church. You just have the tower sticking out, and you. Uh, that's the same area where you have a wandering dune, uh, a dune that's slowly making its way across the the landscape a few centimeters each year. Yeah, and and I think a place like that could could be a really cool uh, place to to have something mystical because obviously it's it's buried a church. So again, you can kind of connected to to the supernatural not not liking the sound of the church bells or or something like that yeah uh, but but going on with with Scandinavia uh, two two things that I think be, because we've basically started to include Finland in Scandinavia and uh, so uh, and and Iceland as well and it's kind of weird that they don't really even mention Iceland and Iceland is a really cool place. To especially if if you like the whole Viking aesthetics, yeah, uh, you have you have fire with the volcanoes and you have ice and you have the sea, so you can have sea serpents and and everything like that. So just Iceland in general is kind of weird that they're missing out on, um, but again, uh, just promoting Finnish culture a bit. Anything from the Kalevala, yes, which is the Finnish national uh, epos. 
uh, it was it was written down in in the 19th, 19th century by a guy who who went around um, collecting the local folk stories, uh, and then he he kind of uh, because it's an oral tradition and it's supposed to be sung, uh, and again. Uh, you have a lot of things that the token basically borrowed just singing the entire world into existence uh, music and and songs as magic and as as words of power a lot of that uh, that Tolkien used in in his creation myth of, of middle earth is straight out of Kalevala uh, uh, Gandalf is pretty much based on uh, one of the characters, uh, Veinamoinen, who is depicted as this traditional um, kind of wizened wizard with a long white beard and long hair and robes. Um, and there are a lot of, of really tragic uh, stories, uh, for example, about a guy who uh, his, his family, or, or rather he thinks that his, his family is has been murdered, and he's growing up in, in uh, horrid conditions and then he finally managed to escape. And when he gets back home, he uh, seduces a fair maiden who turns out to be his uh, surviving sister. And I think she commits suicide. And, and then I think he also, after basically killing a bunch of people, uh, does as well. Uh, and for those of you who, who have read uh, Tolkien's stories about... Uh, is it Hurin or Turin? I, I, I can't remember. I'm I not, think it's the tragedy of Hurin. Yeah, I'm, I'm not uh, really it, that, that up on my Tolkien, unfortunately. Okay, yeah, but it's it's basically that story, but uh, in in the forests of Finland instead. Uh, but there, there are so many interesting, like you you have the uh, you have uh, magical instruments. You have a, a magic mill that a hand mill that you can crank and depending on the setting it can even either produce uh, salt or flour or gold and it's the kind of symbol of prosperity of the land uh, and it uh, yeah it's it's just just check out Kalevala because it's it's a really cool uh, mythos uh, and and you have similar kind of stories in Estonia I think it is in in the Baltics uh, so it's kind of from that area so if if you want uh, some some really cool uh, kind of Eastern European that isn't necessarily the standard pagan uh, versions, then, then Kalevala is, is really something to check out. Yeah. So moving out of Scandinavia, we get to Germania. And I know space is limited, but again, I feel they could have had a little more on fellowships in this area, their interactions and the like, because this is an area where yeah. most of the fellowships would have a chance to meet. And also, I think the example mystical place, the Schwarzwald Umbral Court, I didn't think it was really all that interesting. Yeah, I... <laughs> The, the Schwarzwald is so surrounded by by mysteries and historical events, and uh, and the Nazis kind of held courts there because they were uh, they they were kind of esoteric uh, nut jobs and and fixated with stuff like that. So so it kind of makes sense that the Schwarzwald uh, is uh, a place of power in the game. But I agree that the example they they use this. I, I don't know like yeah it, it's it's kind of boring it doesn't really give you anything to work with 
No, exactly. It, I mean, sure, you can do some stuff with it, but it's just, I, I didn't find it all that inspiring. Next is Iberia. It gets less than half the page. You know, the info given here is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. I think it, uh, here they do focus a little bit more on what the various... Um, what the various fellowships are doing. Obviously, if you want to know more about Iberia, there is Iberia by night. You will have to ignore or at least not uh, use the vampire information very much. But yeah, mm. uh, I don't know if you have something to say about the Iberia section. No, I I just would have liked to see more. Like you mentioned, it's a really short section. Uh, and, and again, there's a lot of things you can do because uh, the, the Muslim states uh, were... They were quite advanced when it came to the the kind of sciences of the day with when it comes to alchemy and um, again maths, uh, but but also architecture and medicine and stuff like that. So so for uh, for many different uh, of the fellowships, it it could be a really cool place to just study stuff if if you you want more. That and it's obviously a place where you can definitely mix several fellowships with the Ali Batin. So it, it, it could be an interesting yeah. area. Eastern Europe is given half mm. a page and it focuses mostly on the Order of Hermes Tremere conflict. That makes sense. You know, that's really what's going on over there. Uh, so the so-called Masasa War. I don't really know where that word comes from, but that's what they've chosen to, uh, to call it. Um, yeah, I think, you know, this whole conflict is pretty cool. And if you set a game in... Eastern Europe, especially Transylvania, then it, it, it's going to be difficult to avoid this. So I think it makes sense that this is what they give information on. Mm, um, yeah. So Italia is next. And um, I think that's a good, uh, some good information. But again, the mystical location, which is a special mage prison, while interesting, takes up way too much of this section. At least, you know, that's my take on it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's... Uh... I think it's kind of interesting that they they fall into the kind of same trap that we talked about with with Spain uh, and and because they talk about Italian basically Italy and and it's like it there's a bunch of different yeah. smaller states and you have the Holy Roman Empire and and so uh, so the, but but yeah there's uh, yeah I I don't know it's I I think the whole section of of basically the 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 pope police or the, the witch police uh i i think it could work if if that's the kind of game you want but on the other hand uh the the whole kind of uh the the, the magical police running around uh it it might not be what you're after uh so it's I, i'd say it's probably an acquired yeah, taste um, but I, I do like their um uh, the um, necromancers that they talk about the ones that aren't really a mystic fellowship they're just or just but they're people who know necromancy and nothing else um and obviously yeah they connect yeah. to vampire via the giovanni um so i think you could have some interesting mm. uh, stuff with that and um real mages sort of looking at these necromancers going let me show you what real magic looks like yeah um exactly. Araby is given about a page which seems far too little to me again i know space was limited but still when one of the fellowships are based in arabia and persia i think some more word count could have been dedicated to this and most of the space is dedicated to infernal cities created by evil mages a couple of hundred years ago which 
has maybe a bit of problematic connotations. You know, the only description outside of Europe being of infernalism. I don't know. It it. Yeah, and and the fact that they call it exotic Araby, uh, it's I don't know. It, it has There's a bit a very, of Orientalism going on. Uh, Arabian. Yeah, exactly, and and it has a very Arabian Nights kind of feel going on with, especially when when you described it or the way that that you mentioned with with all the infernal cities, um, I don't know. It's like there there are so many cool things like the city of brass. It is, really is, is rather cool. cool. Uh, yeah, and and so, but 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 yeah, it's. It could be worse, and considering the time that this book was written in, I think we we kind of have to give him credit where credit is due. But but again, there there are so many missed opportunities that he could have gone for instead. Yeah, I think the mortal lands end with Greece and the Aegean, and here we get the labyrinth of Minos with the Minotaur, the island of the Amazon Amazons, and Atlantis. Uh, and you know what? I'm I'm cool with that. These are iconic, you know, and I think they're well described. So I, I can definitely see the choice made because obviously when you're talking about mythic areas and you're in, in Greece and the Aegean, then that's what you're immediately going to go to. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I really like the examples. I, I also like the rather Cthulhu-esque statue <laughs> that we see on the illustration on page uh, 169 uh, but but again i feel that like i i would like to see more like you could have the oracle of delphi or uh, or, or uh, the um, what's the magical island where or the, where where um, odysseus meets uh, uh, the witch hecate no, isn't it uh, like you, you have so the, many the witch yeah, he, I think it's yeah, just called right, Kirkus sorry. Island. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, that might actually be. But again, you have like the, the entire Aegean Sea with with all of the its islands. It's it's a really cool place. Uh, I I do like the the Minotaur and and the whole uh, Minos, uh, the the labyrinth. Um, but it, it's just a cool. Uh, it's yeah, just exactly. Cool. Uh, and I I like that it's. Uh, the, that they talk about it's it's not just the physical uh, labyrinth in the physical world it also has uh, additional levels in uh, in the umbral space and and that just makes so much sense for it being a labyrinth so you could have someone like no but we've already explored everything and we found everything that's that's here and then they go down again and they accidentally stumble into the umbral sections which is something they've never seen before and they can't find a way because it's a <laughs> yeah. labyrinth. So it makes total sense. Uh, so yeah, that's, I, I really like that one. The chapter ends with a description of the Umbra, the spirit world, and the various lands that are found within, most of which corresponds to places in mortal mythology such as Valhalla, Stygia, and so on. There's a lot of information, and I find it really inspiring mm. since this is where mage can really be different from vampire. If I were to run... Dark Ages Mage, yeah. I would incorporate a lot of travel to this to these spirit lands. Yeah, I I would like to see it as well. I, uh, <laughs> I I'm gonna be fair. Uh, as I was reading this chapter, I I my mind started wandering because, as you said, there's yeah. so much. <laughs> the same thing happened to me. <laughs> and so you have the, 
Yeah, and you have the umbra and you have the penumbra and then you have the periphery and you have the gauntlet and then you have the spectral lands and the shallowings and the, the shadow sea and the shadow lands and the, uh, the, the far shores and there's just so much stuff. Uh, most of it is really cool, but again, it's, it's just going to be a lot of it to, to deal with. And, and as you say, you, you could probably make a really good game and you could probably make an entire chronicle of just exploring these uh, kind of far realms uh, in, in a really cool way. Uh, I, I imagine kind of like basically doing uh, Dante's Inferno, but as a, as a role-playing campaign, which I think could be really cool with the right people and the right Ooh, story. Oh, that sounds amazing, uh, actually. I'm down for that. <laughs> yeah, can you can you talk to Mike in a moment? <laughs> I uh, I could, but yeah, it's just like you. My mind also started to wander because I've always found the Umbra both uh, it, it in Werewolf and in in Mage uh, a bit confusing. I, I've never been able to really wrap my head around how it's supposed to work, but it does make for um, a cool and different setting and I can definitely see the amusing thing is let's uh, uh, have the group wander uh, through the Umbra and they uh, end up in Volhall or another realm and the the Valdemar in the group goes hey I know this place and the rest goes huh what's what's this and and he's like oh come meet my gods they're all uh, assholes yeah exactly <laughs> yeah which which would be the same for for someone of of um, perhaps the old faith going to Mount Olympus uh, so yeah uh, gods in general tend to be assholes. Yeah, it's it's kind of fun when you look at the um, when you look at the, um, uh, the the various pagan gods. They are very uh, humane in their expression, and a lot of them turn out to be some some real bastards. And then you have like one or two gods who are the ones that are just always nice and friendly, and the rest of them are like, yeah, I I don't really want to spend too much time with them. I mean, keep keep Zeus yeah. away from all the ladies because we know what he's like. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but yeah, it's it's a good chapter, uh, even though there is a lot of it. So yeah. you're going to have to read it a few times. Probably. Yeah, I think this is one of the chapters where the Game Master has to decide, okay, this is what my where my campaign is set. This is what it's going to be about. I'm only going to read the sections that is necessary here. Mm. Uh, chapter mm. six is creatures and talismans. And we start with various creatures that in our world would be considered mythological uh, but here, of course, they exist. Uh, I always love a bestiary or bestiary, but I think this one was a bit underwhelming. The sin dragons were cool, but the fairies seemed a bit yeah. stereotypical, and I would have loved to have seen some of the some um, more creatures from actual medieval bestiaries, like for example the Bonacon or the Yale or the Manticora. Yeah, yeah. There are some fun creatures, but it's a bit disappointing. Yeah. I agree. Uh, just to explain to, to our listeners, the, the Sin Dragons is basically you have uh, a dragon for each uh, of the seven mortal sins, uh, which I, I also like. It's a cool concept. Uh, and uh, yeah, just, just having a, a lost dragon is creepy in so many ways. But, but yeah, I agree. It's, it would be cool if they had included uh, a bit of the more uh, the, the actual... Uh, medieval mythical creatures. The Yale is a really cool one, like you mentioned. You also have, oh, what's its name? Which it's it's basically a farting uh, rhinoceros. Uh, that is if, the Bonacon. Mistake. That's the Bonacon. The Bonacon. Okay, yeah. Yes. Which um, this is. 
I'm I'm not making this up. This is from an actual quote unquote scholarly book written in either the Middle Ages or or before. I'm not a hundred percent sure. But basically, this is presented as a creature that actually exists um, in the furthest reaches of the Middle East. This uh, rhino or bull-like creature, which, um, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, shits burning um, feces. It can void its bowels and the stench is enough to make even the hardiest man gag and it also burns. That, I, I mean, seriously, you start to to see where Gary Gygax got his ideas for some of the weird creatures in Dungeons & Dragons when this is the kind of creature that you could find in an actual science textbook in the Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, uh, there are also, like, even the descriptions and especially the illustrations of the... Uh, of of actual creatures uh, are quite interesting. I was when I was in New York. I went to the uh, to the library of of the American Medical Association, oh. uh, and and they had some uh, some really old books and and some of the illustrations of, for example, whales and uh, and and um, elephants are just they. You, you can tell that the the illustration has been made by someone who has been described the animal yeah. <laughs> from someone who hasn't seen the animal itself but it's it's been a scholar who has been talking to a, a fisherman for example and like what's a whale and the fisherman who has probably seen one and perhaps even caught one says like well it's this big creature and it has a huge snout and it can blow water from from the top of its head and it has a huge mouth uh, and and the the scholar is like mm, okay okay so yeah i'm going to write all that down and then the scholar goes to uh, to the the woodcarver um, and, and it's like yeah okay i'm going to i'm going to print this book so i'm going to need an illustration and i'm going to need a woodcut to have in this uh, in this wood or in this book and and this is what the fisherman told me, and the illustrator's like, okay, yeah, I can probably do that, and then it just ends up really, really weird. Uh, so so yeah, it's it's cool. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's fun. Uh, but people didn't know better back then. But it's still fun. Yeah, um, I I would encourage our listeners to basically look up uh, Bonacon uh, and and see if they can find one of the illustrations from. A medieval bestiary where you have this bull-like creature with its tail raised uh, quite clearly farting at a guy who's hiding behind a shield with a sword in hand and the look on his face is like what the hell's going on here it's just yeah. it is hilarious but yeah I, I mean in a game like this what you really want is mystical creatures because yeah. it's about magic and one of the things that mages want to do uh, is is harvest the power of these creatures because mm. they represent a great deal of magical power. And I think this is a way of really showing you that we're in the dark medieval. Uh, I don't, you don't want to turn it into a Dungeons and Dragons game where you can't throw a stone without hitting three different weird creatures like the flail snail and what have you. Um, yeah. But but basically, like when you go outside the city you know that there's going to be wolves and other ordinary creatures, and there's a good chance that you might run into something that 
in our world would be a magical creature, but in this world is simply just a creature with special powers. Obviously, again, yeah. I, I keep coming back to this limit on space, but I think they could have, they could maybe could have cut some of the things that they show out and put in some of the more f- interesting, fun creatures. Yeah, and and just to add on to what you you're saying, that like I, I probably feel that the most uh, environmental encounters that you have should just be mundane creatures, but if you actually go looking yeah. for the thing then then you should find it because that's that's kind of the point of this game is to experience the the magical stuff yeah and and so if you go into the fairy ring in the deep enchanted forest it sh- there there should be something magical there because of course there is that's that's what people believed and and that's what reality to the people living in in this time period was basically yeah uh and one thing that uh, I would love to see, but which doesn't turn up in this book or in in the supplement, is um, creatures, uh, or if that's the word you can use, but from uh, from um, religion. So, what stats would an angel have? Because if you're putting stats on so many other things, then yeah, you might have an angel turn up, and obviously, like uh, an archangel would be beyond just mere numbers but there were lesser angels what would they look like and i think there is uh, there was a tendency unfortunately to shy away from depicting things from religions that were that still exist and are still powerful but they they don't have any problem showing things from various pagan religions that either have died out or are are very very minor in modern days but if you're yeah. going to have this world where faith is real then yeah Maybe an angel turns up uh, because the characters are in a conflict against a member of the messianic voices, and you'd have to do something about th- that angel. So that's something that I think could have been cool to uh, to include. Yeah. Um, we then have talismans, and there's a lot of really really cool information on how mages can create temporary or permanently enchanted items. In general, I really like this section with one or two minor complaints. Um, the first one being that there are no examples of what dots in the talisman background might translate to, uh, which is really yeah. sad. And the mm. second is that I would have loved to have seen more inspiration drawn from real life beliefs about magical items. So, for example. Uh, what would it take to create a sword like uh, Mistletane from uh, from the sagas? However, these are minor nitpicks in an otherwise excellent section. Yeah, and the uh, it it might be that I missed it, but I I don't think the um, oh what what's the what's the name of the stone that you find in goat's bellies that is oh uh, uh, Beswar. Bessar, yeah, thank you. I I would have loved to see that as just an example because it it seems again it's it's a historical uh, actual magic thinging that people believed in, uh, and and it, so it makes sense that it would be in it. But it's also a a, a very classical and and kind of like you can easily make uh, rules for it, so it would make sense. Uh, I one one thing that I. Uh, I don't know if it's actually in this section or if it's in the section of, of Scandinavia, but they talk about magical mead, mm. uh, and they have a they they have the story on on how or or a version of the story rather on on how mead 
uh, came into being or, or came into the world of of uh, the human uh, or of humanity and and to make a long story short uh, basically um, Odin had to uh, shapeshift into a uh, into an eagle and he would fly and he would drink a bunch of the uh, of the mead and then he would fly back to Valhalla but he was being chased by uh, by the, I think it was a Jotun actually who who, who had the mead uh, in in his possession, uh, and and in the version that is in this book, it it says um, it's it's a bit of a cleaner version, so to speak, because <laughs> it says that that uh, Odin has the mead in his mouth, and when he's being uh, almost being caught by this pursuing uh, Jotun, he he just spits it out into. Uh, big uh, uh, big barrels that uh, that other gods have placed out to to catch it in uh, in in at least one of the original versions uh, it's it's a bit more graphic it's not because in his it mouth swallows it yeah <laughs> and and so and and this is the interesting thing is that uh, and and it's basically being he's uh, the pursuer is also some kind of, of flying beast. And he starts pecking at the tail feathers of of Odin, and so to lose some weight, uh, Odin uh, first he he shits out some of the mead, and that kind of falls to the ground, and and that is the 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 shitty mead that turns uh, people into uh, bad singers when they get drunk and they they can't scald properly and and they can't uh, they can't come up with it, with the good stories. Uh, which which kind of makes sense, uh, but then the the good mead he actually has to vomit up into uh, the barrels that that the gods uh, placed for him, uh, and that's that's the good mead. That's that's the kind of where you drink and you get good inspiration and can make the good songs from. Uh, but it's still kind of interesting that that the good stuff is the thing that that was vomited <laughs> up. So uh, they kind of clean it up a bit in this story, and I don't know if it's. If it's the American kind of delicate senses that caused them to do this, or if they just wanted a more sanitized version of it, yeah, but, this has become quite a uh, scathological episode. <laughs> yeah, but again, it's like the 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 myths they weren't really clean, uh, and and neither is the Bible or or a lot of other religious texts when you think about it, but. I don't know. I, I just noticed that and, and thought it was funny that they they had such a sanitized version yeah. of this book. Yeah, and I mean, if you if you want more uh, inspiration for enchanted items and magical effects like that, um, just read any kind of um, legendary and mythological story, including things yeah. like the the stories of um, of Roland and the Paladins of Charlemagne, the Arthurian legends, all those sorts of things. There's just a ton of inspiration there because people have always been uh, been fascinated by magical items. Though I will say one thing, I I wrote a book for uh, the Storytellers Vault where I included a lot of these mythological items. And the amount of weapons, especially swords, whose magical power was that they were the greatest sword ever made and they were unstoppable and anyone who wielded them in battle couldn't lose. There's just so many of them. You might want to to avoid too many of those because it's kind of... um, boring to to have a, a, a weapon that's basically well if you fight with this you're never going to lose yeah 
yeah, this is once again a chapter that really emphasizes the magic of the of the setting, which I like. Um, we end with storytelling, which gives advice on how to run the game, including a nice section on how much historical accuracy you want in the game, which, I mean, we talk a lot about historical accuracy, but I like where this one says, you know, figure out how much you want and how much your players want and don't sweat the little details, which is actually kind of good advice. I mean, you could have a game where people really want to delve into the historical details, or you could have a game where people just, yeah, we're going to be playing in the Middle Ages. We have a general idea of how it works. It's all up to you. Yeah. There's also a lot of really awesome information on how to bring the Middle Ages alive and how it differs from today, which I think is really great. It, it, I think this is the kind of information that actually should have been in an earlier book, even in the, the Vampire Core book, because they really managed to, um, to convey a lot of what the Middle Ages were, were like. Um, one thing that uh, annoyed me a little bit is that they... I think it's in this chapter where they mention that uh, the Middle Ages was probably the darkest period in, in history to be a woman. Mm. And it's like, uh, it wasn't exactly uh, a progressive time and it was certainly better to be a man than a woman the way you were treated. Yeah. But if you look at how the Romans and especially the Greeks viewed women, it was still a little bit better in the Middle Ages. Yeah, I agree. And and the the section on, on gender roles kind of bugged me because <coughs> pardon me. Uh, because as as you mentioned, they they do have an entire section quite early on where they say that if you don't like historical accuracy, you don't have to do it. But then then they spend quite a lot of, of effort explaining just how how shit it is to be a woman and and that you can't really do anything about it because that's what society was like and I'm, and I'm thinking that well if if you can ignore the the lack of of basic hygiene and and teeth that was probably quite prevalent during this time period you you should also be able to kind of ignore at least a bit of the misogyny and and the suppression of women in this time because like it doesn't add anything of its own having female characters being abused and and oppressed all the time so yeah i i do applaud the fact that they included it and and they showed that this time period wasn't really that good for women but on the same time they should say that, that, but if you don't want this, you can throw this as well, just as you did with the other historical accuracy things. So, I don't know. I think it's just a a kind of what what times were back then when this book was written. But just as as the kind of exotic Arabic and phrases like that kind of grinds us the wrong way, uh, this does at least to me as well. Um, yeah but so so yeah that's but but uh overall i i do like this chapter uh there there are some interesting things uh like for example on page two two nineteen you have some really nicely dressed people that have some very historical clothes but again they're they're wearing fifteenth century clothes um so uh including a very stylish hat or two actually but uh, but yeah, there, there's some nice information. Um, I, I I think it's 
uh, it's interesting with the the advices you get that like um, avoid playing in a room with an air conditioning because the hum of the ele- electricity is so- not something you would hear back in the 13th century and it's I don't know it's it it kind of has this a lot of the advices where what kind of food and drinks you should eat during the game to avoid ruining ruining the mood I, I think they're really interesting but I, I think they kind of overestimate just how pretentious your average role-playing session is going to be because I, I don't think a lot of people at least not for every session is going to like yeah let's uh, let, let's just play by candlelight and and just eat stale bread and drink moldy water. Uh, <laughs> also, the, the the whole thing. Try playing in a room without air conditioning. I live in Denmark. That's not going to be a problem. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's true. But and but at least open a window if you're going to be in there for a long time because fresh air is nice. Yeah. Uh, also, if you do play just by candlelight, be very careful because books are flammable. Exactly. Uh, um, yeah. But yeah, there, there, there are a few things uh, here where I went like, huh, what? For example, they talk about how um, Eleanor of Aquitaine went on crusade, which is true, with a guard of women all wearing armor, which seems to be very much an urban legend. But once again, it could be true in uh, this uh, reality because it's a different reality. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and they talk about how this shouldn't be a game of of um, plus two long swords of, of slaying where uh, I obviously went, of course not. Long swords weren't invented yet, but that's just me yeah, being, exactly. being a bit nitpicky. Um, so yeah, uh, it ends with a sample scenario and that really didn't do much for me. It, it, it didn't really catch my interest, but I suppose it's fine enough if you want to you know, have a quick uh, and easy way to introduce the game. Yeah, the the example story didn't really do anything for me either. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's nice to have, but uh, I think you could uh, get better inspiration from other things that that you want to play. Uh, they also have some uh, sample characters that I don't know. It's yeah, you, there's a handful of 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 them. Uh, they're there. And I don't really... Yeah, exactly. There they are. So that's it. And so, this is it for Dark Ages Mage. Historically speaking, I think it offers a lot of really great information, especially in the first and last chapters. And I feel it has solid rules for magic. However, if I were to run or play a game of wizards in the Middle Ages, I would prefer Ars Magica. I really love it so much and... Um, it, it it because it's its own game rather than being a part of a game line it obviously has a lot more information dedicated to all of this however that does not detract from dark ages mage and i i would play this over modern day ascension however i think sorcerer's crusade might just uh, squeak out dark ages mage though if ars magica didn't exist this would definitely be my favorite iteration of Mage. But what's your judgment on Dark Ages Mage? You aren't really, a, you've never really played Mage, right? No, I, I haven't really. Uh, but I, I like the way this presents the premise of of medieval uh, magic users and and a more fantastical magical world. Uh, and I also think that if I wanted to play in a setting 
where you have all of the different other supernatural creatures. So you have the werewolves and the fae and the vampires and and whatever you might think of. I think mage would probably be the one that that fits this kind of setting the best uh, because mages are already kind of supernatural or fantastical creatures in the way and they already have the connection to uh, to fey and to werewolves and and to other magical to, to dragons and whatever uh, so so I, I'd, I'd rather play a mage uh, that can stumble upon a uh, a, a vampire or a dragon or a court of of uh, unseely uh, rather than me playing a vampire and having to deal with uh, with mortal mages and or or fake creatures in in the forest or whatever it i don't know it just makes more sense yeah, if, if you kind of definitely get my point. i feel uh, exactly the same way so uh but but yeah it's uh, i haven't played our magic either so i i can't really <laughs> i can't really say but it yeah I, I wouldn't mind playing a game like this and and just focus on on just exploring all of the magical stuff because i i feel that this game can do that very well yeah uh, next time we take a look at the first of the road books, The Road of the Beast. We, uh, if you have any comments, suggestions or critique, you can pop by our Facebook page. And if you want to support the channel, we have a Patreon. And currently we are donating all the proceeds from our Patreon to Ukraine. Um, and with that, Peter, do you have any last comments before we sign off? Beware the Fae hiding under the stairs. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> and so, it is goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell and see you next time. Bye.